Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for our final and 12th episode of the second season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors and a creator as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yes, Dan, and throughout this entire second season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, you and I have been taking a look at how Spider-Man hit the big time during the Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. run on the title. Well, on today's episode and a fitting season finale, we're going to be saying goodbye to Stan Lee as we approach his issue number 100 on Amazing Spider-Man, uh, which is more or less his final issue, not counting a couple of little scattered things he did afterwards. But we're going to call it, this is the end for Stan. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> We're declaring it over. We're, 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 we're saying this is it, because it's a nice, nice point to end a season on. <laughs> um, <laughs> how convenient so we'll for us. Exactly. So we'll be talking about the transition process, how it occurred. Uh, and then give our final thoughts on Stan's long run on the book. But to do so, we're going to actually be joined by a very special guest straight from Connecticut's very own Terrificon uh, comic book convention. Dan, uh, you and I were there uh, very recently up at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. Uh, and while we were there, we got a great interview with a man who basically picked up the torch from Stan on Amazing Spider-Man, at least for a little while. Uh, and he was also Stan's first uh, successor as editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. He's also known for his incredibly successful runs on X-Men and the Avengers, which inspired so many of the movies we love today. And that man, of course, is the incomparable Roy Thomas. So stay tuned as he'll join us later in this episode. I can't wait for that interview. Of course, this episode wouldn't be possible without the support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose patronage allows us and allowed us to assemble this guest, Roy Thomas, who we're having on our show, and to do all the amazing research that we do to put these things together. This one more than most, because we had to travel, at least I had to travel across the country in order to make this interview happen. So if you enjoy the show and you want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, please go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. For those of you out there who are a part of our Patreon team, we want to spend a special thank you to those new patrons who have joined us for this episode specifically, and those two are uh, Robert Blankenship and Gregory Hertz. Awesome. Well, also, everybody, don't forget, and this is you know a serious don't forget because this is the last warning I'm giving about this, because our next episode is the one. 
we are rapidly approaching our 200th episode at the end of August. Well, we've already recorded it, Mark, uh, to be honest. But, uh, you know, we're going to be debuting it in September, and we want to feature your calls on the show. So give us a ring at our hotline, 9RedGoblin, and leave us a message with your name, where you're calling from, and any memories you have of listening to the show. We'd love to know more about you and what you've enjoyed in our journey from episode 100 to 200. Like I said, Mark and I just recorded the majority of that episode at Terrificon, and all that's missing really are your thoughts. And I thought that the listeners calling in was probably the best part of our episode 100. Do you agree, Mark? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was that was some of our most riveting and surprising content. It was kind of like, a total validation for everything we had done over the first 99 episodes of that show. Yeah, it was really fun to kind of hear people's stories. Like, I'll never forget that we had a guy call in who works on spiders as a career that listens to us. Yes. Or the guy that, like, eats ramen in Tokyo while listening to us. Yeah. We got some great anecdotes, some great color from the people who listen to our show. And, you know, if you're out there... You know, call us back again. Let us know how you're doing. And if you're new to the show over the last couple of years, let us know what you do when you listen to the show or let us know what you associate with the show. Um, you know, we met some great fans of the show, Dan, at Terrificon. Um, but uh, we want to hear from more of you. So, again, that number is nine and then Red Goblin, which is a character we definitely created. Yes, we are the first official appearance of the Red Goblin. Awesome. Well, enough of that, Mark. Let's get to the action. We hope you guys enjoy our episode entitled Goodbye, Spider Dad. You know, I guess one person can make a difference. Enough said. Well, Mark, like we do on the show, you know, we like to kind of run through the facts before we get to our interviews. And um, you're the guy that with all the spider knowledge. So um, why don't you tell our listeners at home, like, how did Stan's run come to an end? What are the raw uh, details that people need to know going into this interview? As Roy Thomas himself explains in the interview, Dan, I mean, what's kind of funny is, you know, in those days, and I think especially at Marvel, given the personalities of those involved, I mean, you know, a, a transition of, you know, something of the magnitude of the longtime editor and writer of multiple books moving into like an upper office role as publisher wasn't really like this big official passing of the torch. It kind of just happened. <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, you, you, you could get the sense kind of leading up to this moment. I mean, we're, we're in the early 1970s now. Um, and, you know, Stan was, was definitely winding down his, his obligations as a writer and editor on multiple books. I mean, the, 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 big, the big holdouts for him were uh, Fantastic Four and Amazing Spider-Man. And Fantastic Four, his run on that book ended uh, when Jack Kirby finally had enough, if you will, and, and up and left Marvel for DC, which kind of left Stan with, with tidying up Amazing Spider-Man. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, you know, we, we talked about this earlier in the season, probably the big, 
the big true swan song that Stan was really, really engaged with on Spider-Man might have even been considered the drug code issues, the, the you know, Harry Osborne saga that we, we talked about earlier this year. But Stan kind of kept it going, a few more issues, wanted to stop at issue 100, but they didn't have a full-time writer lined up. Roy Thomas is going to explain, you know, they, they asked him to fill in briefly until they could find a full-time writer, which really was only supposed to last a couple of issues. But then um, Stan ended up coming back for a few more to create uh, such amazing characters as the Gibbon uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, before officially giving it away uh, to, to Jerry Conway, uh, where Jerry Conway became the, I guess, He's not the second official writer, but I guess the second official long-term writer of Spider-Man. Uh, uh, but but Roy was in between that too, and and you know at this point, I also feel like this is kind of like the point in history where Stan. I mean, he was already the face of Marvel, but like this is really where he starts becoming like the mascot of Marvel, if you will, kind of the role that people more or less associate with him today. You know, he he was kind of looking into some special projects. They had him out in California for a while to. Stan was just desperate to get uh, these Marvel characters into a higher profile. I mean, they had the animated uh, series in the 60s that we discussed earlier this season. Um, but, you know, he wanted he wanted movies. He wanted television. So Stan was out and about making that happen. I mean, his official title was publisher. Even then, he wasn't really truly involved in a lot of the uh, publishing end of things. I mean, he was supposedly supposed to be consulted, um, you know, <laughs> In a, many, many years ago, uh, Dan, you and I talked to Jerry Conway about the death of Gwen Stacy issue because, you know, there's always been this big urban legend that Stan was opposed to the de- uh, to Gwen being killed off. And why didn't anybody consult them as that was his his role at that point? But again, as Roy kind of reveals in this episode, that's not entirely the case. Stan was just out doing lots of other things. Uh, and, and the print side um, was not um, really his, his bag. And if anything, John Romita Sr., uh, who moved over to art director, seemed to be more involved uh, with a lot of the day-to-day issues of Marvel's line of books. So uh, it's it's kind of a really interesting thing. And then, of course, there is issue 100, which sets the template for the centennial issue of Spider-Man, I guess, in a lot of ways. Although it's also a truly bizarre comic that ends with Peter wanting to once again just get rid of all of his Spider-Man responsibilities, taking a serum from Dr. Kurt Connors and ends up giving him four extra appendages so he becomes the human <laughs> spider. <laughs> and then Stan ups and, and, and leaves temporarily and leaves it for Roy Thomas to clean up the mess. So it was an interesting time, Dan. <laughs> um, what, what I've always been curious about with Stan like in the 70s is that like you could tell the guy clearly whether he's, he likes to say he wanted to write the next great American novel. You know, and yeah. or like you know, write a movie or, and and be heavily involved in movies and and not necessarily Marvel movies. He wanted to like work in movies, right? He saw this kind of as a stepping stone into that larger world, and he never really quite pulled it off. And for a while there, it seemed like he almost was trying to leave his comics legacy behind because it felt like handcuffs to him. Yeah. Before he kind of ultimately reembraced his persona as you know a comics industry uh, trailblazer I, I i always find it interesting these these major legends of kind of alt media like comics and the other person i'm thinking of is kind of like vince mcmahon and wrestling it's like they're almost like 
embarrassed of the medium that gave them their most success. So they're always trying to kind of prove that they can do more than this one thing that is kind of derided by the mainstream as, as either being kid stuff or, or not serious enough. And yet at the end of the day, it's like, I think the further away they get from what their bread and butter is, the, the worse off they are, you know, <laughs> like, it's like I mean, Michael Jordan playing baseball. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly uh, a good analogy. So uh, it's, it's, it is interesting how Stan was just so desperate to, to become this uh, multimedia magnet. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, his greatest successes continue to be in comics. <laughs> like he can't escape it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, I think that's a great bridge to, uh, to go into our interview with none other than Roy Thomas. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends. The kind of guy I go to other friends who recommend. Find out about the things they created. You'll love them so much that you wish you dated. But you're just friends. They're an amazing friend. A friend, a friend, a friend. They're an amazing friend. We're here at Terrificon at Mohican Sun in Connecticut with the legendary comic book creator, uh, Roy Thomas. Uh, we, before we get started, Dan, I just wanted to thank uh, John Cimito, the Migo, Migo Stretch Hulk, for helping set this up. Roy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, sure, my pleasure. On the second season of Amazing Spider Talk, we've actually been chronologically running through um, the Stanley John Romita senior run on Amazing Spider-Man and kind of how the character had grown into more of a multimedia figure at that point and you know as an end cap to this season we were going to end at issue number 100 which is of course right around the time where stan left the book and then you joined on <laughs> so yeah yeah well he made me do it yeah exactly <laughs> well we're going to ask you about that but before we, we before we get into the details of that i did want to start off by uh, just asking you a little bit about um you know when you had joined marvel in the the uh, late 60s you know at that Okay, mid-60s. Yeah. I mean, so at that point, I mean, Stan had been kind of winding down some of his commitments, but it seemed like Fantastic Four and Spider-Man were things that he kind of held on to the longest, at yeah. least till the end. And Thor, like, right after that. Those were the big three, and, of course, FF and Spidey, because they were the biggest two Marvel books at the time. FF was number one, and Spider two, and then, of course, by the time, by a little later, a few months or a year into Ramita's reign, Spider-Man was number one, and FF was number two. In, you know, from your memory, what what caused him to finally kind of let go of of all the books altogether? I mean, was he just running out of time or availability? Or no, no, no. Uh, a year later, about a year later, he quit all the books, and that was when he sort of ran out of time. When he became, you know, when he got kicked upstairs, got himself kicked upstairs to be publisher and president. That was when he really had to quit writing regular comics. But that was several issues. That was about a year in the future yet. No, uh, the only reason he left. Those uh, couple of those couple of books in uh, when he did after number one hundred and the the the, the com comparative number of Fantastic Four was because he was going to write a movie screenplay with Alan René, the uh, French film director of Last Year at Marion Bad, Hiroshima Mon Amour, and uh, Alan moved to New York for uh, about a year, six months or a year, and Stan just felt he still came in off and on to check out things, but he basically just didn't want to write and he wanted minimal editorial duties, so I suddenly had to. You know, I wasn't editor-in-chief because he was still a presence, but he was much less active for those four months. And he called me into his office, and he said, uh, says, you know, I've I got to quit writing the, uh, those two books you know, for, you know, for four, four months. I need that commitment so I can write this screenplay with Alan. And uh, he said, so I, says, I want you to write uh, Spider-Man. And I said, well, 
I don't really want to write Spider-Man, you know, because my, my favorite was I, – I liked Spider-Man. I had bought it since the beginning. But I, what I wanted to write, and I couldn't write both of them. I had my own full slate. Uh, was I wanted to write Fantastic Four. I wanted to be the second guy to write Fantastic Four, not Spider-Man. But he said, no, nah. I says, you know, Spider-Man's it's the most important book. I want you to write Spider-Man. So it's what Stan wanted, Stan got. So I wrote those four issues of Spider-Man, and Archie Goodwin got to be the second guy to write Fantastic Four and did a, a fine job of it, you know. But uh, I'm, I'm really lucky because uh, the fact that he did that at exactly the time that the Comics Code had loosened up to the point we could do vampires meant that I ended up with Gil Kane uh, and, and a little help from Stan creating Morbius, uh, you know, led to, what, now a movie coming out in a couple of years, <laughs> you know, so, so I'm very lucky. Uh, you know, Gil and I, we just wanted to do Dracula. I mean, Dra- you know, we, uh, our idea was just to bring, Dr- you know, Dracula wasn't yet a Marvel character, for those that might forget the order of these things, and we were just going to revive Dracula and have him meet, because the comics code was t- changing, and it said you were supposed to do things like Dra- Frankenstein and Dracula that were in the tradition of these classics that were taught in school. That's the kind of wording they have in the code. It didn't say you could do anything, just anything. It was supposed to be, you know, more literary kind of stuff. And that was what we were going to do because that's what the code said. And that was maybe our taste. And Stan said, no, no, I wanted to be more like a supervillain vampire. So, and we, so once we got going there, Gil and I not only made him a supervillain vampire, uh, which Stan wanted, but... Also, we betrayed the whole thing the code said we could do because we didn't even really make him a real vampire. <laughs> we were supposed to. But we said, well, you know, it's, it's all fun to have fangs and bite people in the neck and all that stuff. And that would be fun. But, you know, if we're going to do a supervillain vampire, I remembered a movie that I had seen in the late 50s called, uh, it was called Just the Vampire. And it wasn't, but it was about a guy, not a guy who was a real vampire. It was about uh, a guy who had a blood disease and he needed, he needed to drink blood for this blood disease and so forth. You know, and I just swiped that idea cold and said, this is what we're going to do. Gil and I worked out the plot. Uh, I came up with the name Morbius, not, not remembering consciously that it's the name of the character Walter Pidgeon plays in one of my favorite science fiction movies, Forbidden Planet. I didn't remember that until years later. I just, hey, that's a great name, Morbius. Didn't remember where I got it from, but there it is. So, and, and so I just ended up writing those, and then Gil and I, Gil said, hey, I'd like to do a King Kong kind of story, which is, again, Stan would never have let him do. Stan wouldn't have taken Peter Parker at that stage to the Savage Land. But Gil and I could get away with it because, you know, Stan, it's just four issues, so we could get away with stuff that, you know, Stan wasn't going to, wouldn't have wanted us to do if I had actually taken over the book. Well, you famously came on, like you just kind of inferred, after this major cliffhanger in, in issue 100, and it sounds like, you were working with Stan on kind of crafting that story, but how much, when he, like, let you kind of take the reins on it, how much did you have free reign to kind of conclude that story in whatever way you wanted? He gave me no direction at all except, you know, take care of it over the next couple of issues. <laughs> he didn't tell me what to do with it. As a matter of fact, I always kind of, not resent, but I regretted the fact that, right, that in the last panel of his issue number 100, he has Spider-Man grow four extra arms. And I said, all of a sudden, he's not the typical Spider-Man. He's Spider-Man as a total freak with four arms. And Stan would always say, I thought you did that. He forgot that he did. And he thought, I thought you did that thing with four arms. He says, look at the last panel of uh, number 100. I didn't write that panel. I said, I didn't even want it, you know. And uh, so we were stuck. Then one of my regrets is that I couldn't, that for some reason, uh, Gil did a great job with all those issues, but I could not get him. And maybe I didn't try hard enough. Stan might have, you know, put, leaned on him harder. I couldn't seem to inspire in those in those two issues 
to do anything with those forearms. <laughs> you know, of course, not granted, he's just, you know, I have him flailing around once or twice. But other than that, it's almost like he's the same guy, but he's got six arms, you know. And, and Gil just, I don't think he felt comfortable with it. He didn't really want to do it. So he just ignored them as much as possible. <laughs> and all of a sudden, at the end of the second issue, I, they just vanish, you know. <laughs> and so I don't think we handled that too well. But the rest of it I'm kind of proud of. I, I think it would have been a really good story if I hadn't had those extra forearms for two issues, you know. Because that just got in the way. But I had fun with it because I did all kinds of things that Stan wouldn't do. I, like, I mentioned the pulp characters like Shadow and the Spider. You know, Stan was never going to mention the spider as a character in the story or mention Batman. You know, I would do little things that I knew Stan wouldn't do, but that I figured, you know, they, were, they would be okay. If, if, and if Stan, Stan did see the stories before they went out, he didn't, I don't think he changed anything. So, you know, he, except, you know, he worked on the cover. He rejected Gil's first cover. You've probably seen that. There's a cover of, I think, Spider-Man being what? I think he's being knocked down the stairs by Morbius or something in a different way. It's a different, it's been published. And that was his first cover, but it wasn't the right angle. Uh, Stan didn't like the angle, so he, so he had to do it over. And the cover that was used is actually the second cover Gil did. Oh, oh, I actually hadn't seen that. Yeah, yeah it's been published. Yeah. Okay, let's just check that out. It's probably, yeah. Um, Come on, your spider talk. You I know, know that. I know. <laughs> Come on. At the very least, our listeners probably don't know uh, about they, it. I'll bet they know about it, yeah. Some of them, some of them do. They're going to hold it against us for sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna email us about this. I, I am curious, so... You, Besides the fact that it wasn't necessarily your first choice to write Spider-Man, I mean, when you started, I mean, did you kind of know from the onset that this was going to be more like a, a transitional uh, stop for you? Or, or did you, I mean, were you basically looking for the next full-time writer while you were working no, on the book? No, no, because Stan was coming back, and he did. You know, I knew Stan was coming back, or at least, you know, he could have changed his mind, but he was intending to come back in four issues, and he did. And then he wrote, I don't know what, another four, five, six issues or something like that. And, you know, some of his greatest moments, the Gibbon. I mean, you can't beat the Gibbon, <laughs> you know. And, uh, but I think by this time, I, th- I think Stan already, but it's funny. You know, Stan was one of these guys that was fiercely committed to what he did. You know, whether it was Sergeant Fury or Doctor Strange or, you know, Daredevil, whatever book he did. But as soon as he relinquished the reins, he didn't want to take them back again. Because as soon as he'd laid that, some burden down, when he didn't really... I don't think he came back to the book with the same commitment that he would have had if he had kept writing 101, 102, 103. And once he dropped it that once for four months, I don't think it was that hard for him, relatively speaking. It was easier, at least, a few months later to just give it up entirely when he became publisher. He'd have probably done it anyway, but I think it was a little trans. And, you know, I could have had the book again as the regular writer. I just, ah! No, you know, I mean, I love Spider-Man, but I don't want to, I had enough teenage angst when I was writing X-Men. I don't want Spider-Man. I, I, I preferred the Fantastic Four. You know, I liked them both, but I, but as writing, there was no contest. The Thing is my favorite Marvel character. And, but I could have had it, but I said, I don't want to be saddled with Spider-Man and have to do all this stuff. And, you know, with Barry, with MJ and all the, you know, the, their teenage friends. I, and Jerry, now there's this kid here, Jerry Conway. He's about the same age as Spider-Man. You know, let him ride it. And, and Jerry did a great job. Let him ride it and kill Gwen Stacy and, yeah, and, and ruin well, it for everybody. That was, <laughs> that was one of the first things we did, of course, yeah. <laughs> You're not going to ask me about that, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I like the idea that there's this one kid, Peter Parker, who's teenage angst somehow outweighs an entire team of superheroes. Yeah, well, it was just angst. one more, you know, because the thing is, I, I, I was never that wild about that aspect of X-Men either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I only really enjoy. I mean, I, I enjoyed doing that, uh, doing a book, but I mostly enjoyed it after Neil came on 
and everything because the art then suddenly got so better. We just about saved the book. It should have been saved, you know, really, if Goodman had been paying attention. That's why it came back a few months later as a reprint. But and with Spider-Man, I just didn't want to get saddled down with it again. Stan also made me write the first issue of Marvel Team-Up. You know, he said, I want you to write the first issue. I could have gone on, but I said, oh, my God, I not only have to deal with Spider-Man, but every month I have to come up with a new character. This is a job for Jerry Conway. He's new. <laughs> he's fresh. He'll do anything, you know, and so forth. So let him do it. You know, and I said, I'm never going to write that book again, and I never did. Um, so when you did eventually become editor-in-chief of Marvel. I mean, was this something that was kind of spontaneous or was this something that was being developed for a while? I mean, obviously Stan was moving upstairs, but how'd that work out for you? No, Stan didn't tell me nothing. You know, I never knew. When he went over to D.C. and was thinking about going there, I didn't know he'd been to D.C. till later. I found out one day, you know, right about the time he did or right before he did, that he, you know, that he's going to become the president and publisher of the company. And I'm moving all the way up to, quote, story editor. You know, you heard that, sorry, right? <laughs> that, that I'd be story editor. And the thing is, and he, he created a triumvirate. Now, now, you know, if you don't know how steady triumvirates are, ask guys like uh, Lepidus in, uh, as opposed to what happened between him, uh, a- Antony, and uh, Octavius, you know, and that other one that Caesar was a part of with Pompey before. That triumvirates never work. So he had John Verporten as the production manager, me as, uh, me as story editor, not editor-in-chief, story editor, just the, like the art. Because Stan didn't want to give up the titles, I think. He liked the idea of still being the editor. He wasn't editor-in-chief. He never held that title, but editor and art director. He, and he, he didn't have an art director either. That He appointed John, uh, Frank Jacoya as assistant art director and everything. So, and it was like if, you know, a couple of months later that I finally became story editor when I pulled a little coup that you know, has nothing to do with Spider-Man directly. The second season of our show has been largely about John Romita's work across Marvel, but mainly on Spider-Man, but you know, he got, during this time, he became the art director. I guess, I'm wondering if you could... Well, af- after, after Kirby and Ditko, John Romita is the most important artist at Marvel, you know, and everything, because, I mean, John Buscema might be a better technical artist. It was very, very important. Other people were important in various ways, but John Romita became the most important for two reasons. One, he could draw Spider-Man, made it even more popular than it was under Ditko, and it was very popular under Ditko. And secondly... Uh, he was such a great art director, assistant art director, informal art director, whatever. He could correct stuff. He, could, he knew what Stan wanted most of the time. You know, he, was, he and I together, we could anticipate Stan a lot of the time, and we became his little you know, you know, brain trust. He would call in you know, for other things because Stan, Romita knew what he wanted artistically, and I knew what he wanted in terms of story, and we both overlapped to some extent too. So we made a good team, and I don't think John and I ever had that I could remember any real serious disagreement over over anything. We, I mean, he sort of gave way to me, but it really wasn't the case of that. If he had an opinion, I wanted to hear it. Yeah. Can you think of any specific instances that might help illustrate for us what John Romita's role as art director, how that might have influenced a comic in some way? No, uh, you mean art director, not Spider-Man per se, but but like yeah, in, in a larger role, like what what one one way that might have manifested itself. Well, of course, one way was that uh, you know Stan had certain kind of handsome looks he wanted on the covers and prettiness and you know and Romita was willing, maybe a little reluctant, but he was willing to 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 enrage people like uh, Barry Smith and uh, Jim Starlin, not that he wanted to, and other people, you know, uh, whom he respected, whose work he respected very much. If Stan said, like on the cover of what, Conan number 9, he says, Barry Smith, that, this girl that Barry drew on the cover, I, I don't like that face, change it, you know, and everything. And, and uh, you know, and 
uh, Starlin, of course, who, you know, who bristled at it. And, you know, I understand why they did I wouldn't have done that because I just said, is it worth pissing off the artist, you know, a little bit annoying the artist by doing this? You know, are you better off just, you know, leaving it kind of it is. If it isn't really bad, it's just a case of it's not exactly what you want. And I had a different approach to it. And, you know, Stan, but, you know, I'm not going to quarrel with Stan. He's the guy that if any one person made Marvel, it was Stan. So it wasn't one person, but if there had to be one, it would have been him. So I couldn't argue with it. Ramita would just be in there and do – he was a troubleshooter. He would leap in. Uh, anything Stan wanted him to do, he could, he could either do it himself or delegate it well. Uh, he could, you know, he could anticipate Stan. Stan didn't – sometimes, you know, he may have done stuff that maybe Stan wouldn't have changed because, you know, he was being maybe a little overcautious because he didn't want Stan to come by later and say, why did you let this head go through or that or that? So maybe – but whenever he did it, he was acting for Stan, not because Ramita had – Ramita was as – I mean, he has – I hope he has a healthy ego because he deserves it, but he was, but he was a relatively egoless kind of person who was just willing to t- – I think it's because he never really saw his work as being as good – as I did. I mean, the, the day I met him, and I look up and I see this guy, and Saul Brodsky, the production manager, introduces me. So, so this is a guy who used to work here. He's going to be working here again, John Ramita. And I looked up and said, oh, you're the guy that drew those great Captain America stories 10, 11 years ago. Ramita practically faded. He said that he didn't think anybody would remember <laughs> that, that, like, less than a year when he was drawing Captain America. And, and that still remains my favorite of all his work. He'd always say, how could you like that better than my Daredevil or Spider? I said, Doc, my favorite, Captain America, 1954. That's it. You find me one of those pages, I'd rather have that than anything you've done for Spider-Man, except for the resale value. <laughs> but Ramita was great. He was like one of the most important artists at, at Marvel, which meant one of the most important history in the field. Um, so, Roy, just, just before we let you go, I mean, again, I mean, you obviously talked a lot of, about just Ramita just before here, but, I mean, going back to Stan and his work as, as writer and scripter for, for Spider-Man, I mean, do you feel, do you have, first of all, do you have a personal favorite story that Stan did on Spider-Man from when you were as a reader and then when you were with Marvel? And, and I mean, besides the, the obvious answer that he, you know, co-created the character, I mean, what do, you, what do you feel is Stan's legacy in connection to Spider-Man and, and what it's contributed, you know? The fact that he guided the character and knew, despite whatever he did, whatever Kirby did, whatever Ditko did, and and so forth, and and Ditko was certainly a major contributor to Spider-Man and everything in in many, many ways, the fact remains that Stan was the guiding person there. He was the person who had to make the decision. Kirby could think what he wanted to do with Spider-Man. Ditko could think what he wanted to do with Spider-Man. But Stan was the conduit who was there saying yes or no. And if you had to please Stan... And his instincts on Spider-Man were about as infallible as you can get, you know. And it does. And even if Steve did everything, the fact remains, Stan had to recognize that. And, and he knew that basically Steve was, it's not like Stan would have drawn that exact costume or this or that, but he knew what story he wanted. Saul Brodsky told me soon after I began to work there, because he had been working there as production manager and informally doing production, and he said that from the beginning, he said Stan knew there was something special about Spider-Man, and he really liked that character, you know, and was, was pushing it through and everything. And it wouldn't have been as good a character probably without Ditko. It's hard to think of anybody else that could have done it as well. Uh, and, you know, and then he became the plotter and everything else. But anybody who tries to discount Stan because Steve Ditko was so good and so important is just crazy. Do you have a favorite Stan story that you can think of? About uh, a Spider-Man story, yeah. My my favorite story to show how different Steve and Stan were, and how they were. When I near near the end, about the second last story, it is I think with the looter. Remember the looter? Of course. Well, not one of the best, but it was okay. But it was, yeah, it wasn't the second last. I think that he did. Yeah, yeah. 
because that guy named Joey didn't even do the cover for it, really. Uh, but anyway, the, um, the thing was that, I'll, I'll tell this in a few sentences, that basically, you know, Steve would do the plotting, and then Stan would do the dialogue. And Fred, he was doing it from not exactly stick figures, but they're real loose, just ovals and shapes. And so it's, it, you look at that, and the looter had a kind of a skin-tight costume. So you look at it, it's hard to tell which one in the pencils. It was rough pencils. It was hard to tell which was which. They're fighting. That, that's okay, you know, and so forth. Webbing coming out. But then... You have it, one fight ends, and there's a, there's a panel, lower left-hand corner of a page, with a figure on a ledge outside. Now, that can either be, A, the looter, I'm glad I got away from Spider-Man. He'll never look for me out here in the ledge. Or, B, it's Spider-Man saying, where the hell the looter go? I'm out here on this ledge, and I don't see him. So Stan says, I don't know which one it is. I mean, I, you know, so he writes it as Spider-Man. Because he, he says, that, that works out best. The looter's gone. That makes sense more than he's hiding out in the ledge because Spider-Man might look out the window. Yeah. So he writes him. And, then, and, and he knew Steve read all the dialogue. So the, the thing comes in inked. It's inked as the looter because that's what Steve admit. So Steve inks him as the looter. And Stan, I, one of the first times I've seen him really get pissed off and, and moaning around, he says, that son of a bitch. <laughs> he says that. You know, and he liked, he liked Ditko's work so much. But he said, I know he reads this stuff. He knew what I wrote. It's got a couple of balloons. But he knows that Spider-Man. He knows it could have been either one. And he inked it as a looter. He did it on purpose. And so he, there was a, this artist, Carl Hubble, who did some inking. He was a good artist from the 40s and 50s. Carl Hubble, he was inking Rawhide Kid or stuff that time. And, he, and I remember Carl Hubble, one of the only times I ever met him, it was some, some late afternoon. Through 6 o'clock in the afternoon, I stayed there at the office with him. Stan had Saul Brodsky tell him, I, I want you to just change this to Spider-Man. He, says, <laughs> he, he had two, two choices. He could either change his balloons to, to be the looter and have them relettered, might have been easier, or have every single line whited out and, and, and turned into and, and put that webbing on just right and everything because he wanted him, you know. And, but he said, you know, it was, became a contest of wills at that stage between him and Steve. He was going to have his way, you know, which probably, you know, was just like one more little nail in the coffin of the Ditko-Lee relationship. But that's just, you know, they were on such different wavelengths. The amazing thing is they were able to stay together long enough to create all this great work, you know. I mean, you know, Ab and Costello, Martin and Lewis, I mean, they, they do good work together, but it doesn't last forever, you know. Something, the Beatles, I mean, it all breaks up sooner or later. I'm now rewriting my Spider-Man history and thinking that the looter was the reason for the breakup. <laughs> well, probably not, but, you know, but, you know, it didn't help any. It didn't help any because, you know, but if you ever needed any exact thing of how much on the different page Stanley and Steve Ditko were by the time of the breakup or right before, that's a good example of it. They couldn't have been any further apart. Literally a different page. <laughs> really a different page, yeah. I wish we had been able, you know, those days we didn't have photocopiers, you know, and so I wish we'd been able to save the original, you know, two of that. But uh, at the time, you know, the main thing was just get it done. I remember Carl finished it in about an hour or so, and then we just, we walked off through Washington Square, down to Washington Square Park, walking around in the winter and so forth, and kind of forgot about it and only years later did I think about how kind of that's like an important little uh, telling moment excellent well Roy thank you so much for joining us on the show I mean you, you did such great anecdotes and you know you even pointed out things that we should have known about yeah. so. I certainly <laughs> did I certainly did <laughs> so well, thank, you very, thank you very much my pleasure thank you, you. alright Dan well that was a really great insightful interview with a great final anecdote to boot from uh, Roy Thomas. So thanks again to him, and also thanks again to uh, John Cimino, the Amigo Stretch Hulk, for helping set that all up uh, over Terrificon weekend a couple weeks ago. It's just great to get uh, insights in a voice like Roy on this show. I mean, I think it's a real, 
real eye opener for Amazing Spider Talk to have Roy on. Absolutely agree with you, and and he was a great guy to boot, so that that helps out a lot. Absolutely, probably the best conversation I've ever had in a hotel lobby anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Mark, you know, before we kind of close out the show, I wanted to kind of put we're saying goodbye to Spider Dad, so I think it's time to kind of like you know put. Stan Lee to rest, so to speak. Uh, you know, talk about this run. Regardless of Dicko or Ramita, you know, Stan Lee has been the one common voice through these first 100 uh, issues of this comic and our two seasons of this show. Uh, and I kind of wanted to get, take a temperature, like, your thoughts on Stan Lee and his run. I mean, is, is it your favorite run? I know we've kind of had this conversation before, but um, favorite and then, I guess, like, legacy of this run. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely sometimes hard to to separate like the the legacy and impact of something from a personal taste. But the thing is, uh, when I kind of go back to favorite stories of mine um, of Spider Man, I mean, they're almost all Stan stories. And I think you know, regardless of whether it was Dicko or Ramita, um, there there was something to how Stan wrote the character and captured his voice and kind of just helped evolve um, the universe from the, the narrative standpoint that, that just makes his work the best for Spider-Man. And I think what, what, what makes it even funnier is when you hear Stan give interviews, especially like early on, uh, about what makes Spider-Man unique. And he like kind of always gives this canned statement um, about like, oh, you know, he's a teenager who bad with girls and he's got acne and, and and it's like all these like very cliched things about like dorky teenagers which when you actually read the books is not who this character is at the least uh and yet when he writes the character i mean i always feel like outside of referring to him as peter palmer and amazing spider-man number one it's always been pretty consistent in terms of characterization and 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 getting the 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 angst and uh, the misery of what it is for Peter to be Spider-Man. Um, you know, certainly in terms of favorite stories, you know, it's again, it's probably a cliche choice. It was certainly the easiest book I could have picked for the Essential series when we did that way back when, Dan. But it's it's Amazing Spider-Man number fifty. I just feel like that book is is just pure Stan at a schmaltziest and in a in the best way possible in terms of just ca- capturing just just the utter despair of being this very wretched superhero. <laughs> um, so, um, and I think that's just kind of what it boils down to. It's just, it's, it's, it stands just have the mastery of this dichotomy of something that should be so great and grand. And yet is kind of reduced to something so unpleasant and, and misery inducing. I mean, what about you? It's funny that you say that, um, it's hard to separate the, the legacy from the idea of like favoritism, because so often we look back on like something that created a series, you know, and say like, you know, oh, you know, Star Wars: A New Hope is the best Star Wars because you know it's but it's the one that set up the legacy, you know, and it's a way almost to kind of like denig- denigrate it. It's like saying it wasn't fully formed, but um, it's the legacy one, and so that's why it's so great. And I don't think anybody's trashing on Star Wars: A New Hope, but like so often when you look back at like. You know, I'm trying to think, like, Terminator, right? Like, the first one, it's great because it set up the legacy that then T2 knocked out of the park, you know? Um, And it's almost like a backhanded compliment. But I think this is, like, one of those rare instances where 
the first guys to do this thing were also the best guys to do this thing. Uh, and everybody's just kind of been, you know, sometimes a pale imitation, sometimes even better, but never as consistently entertaining or thrilling or exci- as exciting as Stan and Ditko and Romita were. Like, that run, it's probably the best run in superhero comics, period. Uh, you know, over that sustained a time and with that kind of gravitas in regards to forming a character. And so I don't think you really have to split those things up. And how rare is that in judging anything from a series like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think the only, you know, if you're going to pick nits, probably, you know, the other book that might come close would be the, the Lee Kirby run on Fantastic Four. But frankly, again, like, I don't know. I feel like that book loses steam towards the latter stages of it, uh, especially with the last 20 or 30 issues. And I guess you could say that there are elements of this book as, as you know, Stan is kind of getting pulled in different directions that uh, loses a little bit of its luster. But then, like, you pull out a story like the, the, the drug code issues, and that's just a great story regardless of the circumstances and, and, and the drama behind it. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the greatest Spider-Man stories of all time, you know, like <laughs> no matter, no matter what, no matter what code or, or seal is on it. Um, and the fact that like, again, like you said, like these guys had this in them really to the end. It's, it's, it's an impressive feat. It's, it's, it, it goes beyond just impact. It's like, no, this is the sheer talent and sheer storytelling prowess. And, and that can't be taken away in any shape or form. Yeah. And Lee's talent for, uh, you know, the voices of the supporting cast. I mean, you could draw them. Well, you could draw them in two completely opposite ways, <laughs> you know, Dicko and Ramita. And yet his voice carried it through and made them always so entertaining. And, and I think the, it's the characters that make Spider-Man so wonderful, you know, like I think Fantastic Four's, you know, spectacle, it's got great characters, but it's really the kind of crazy ideas that power that book ahead. But regardless of the artist, you know, Spider-Man to me is Stan Lee, like it's a showcase for what his special talent is because he weathered, I, I, he had two great artists to weather with him but it's his voice that remains consistent throughout and it is really i would say if not the prominent draw at least co-share of the prominent draw of the series and you know the, spider-man has been written by some amazing people each with their own unique take like i think about jmd and his spider-man couldn't be written more different differently than Stan's spider-man but you know, the one that we always reset to is stands. Nobody is going in that other directions. It's always stand, stand, stand. He's the main voice behind this character. Speaking of, of some of these other creators, Dan, um, you know, when we were at uh, Terrificon, we actually were able to ask um, a couple of uh, the guests we interviewed, uh, people who've worked on Spider-Man, to, to kind of give us their thoughts on on Stan, the creator, as as it relates to Spider-Man. And, and uh, why don't we hear from uh, two of them here uh, with Nick Spencer and Mark Guggenheim. You know, one of the things we've been doing to kind of culminate the second season of our show is we've been talking to various creators who've worked on Spider-Man about uh, Stan Lee's 
work, I mean, both with Steve Ditko and with John Romita Sr. on Amazing Spider-Man in the 60s and early 70s. And, you know, beyond the obvious, you know, the fact that Stan created or co-created the character and, you know, Amazing Fantasy, you know, we're trying to get a sense of some of other creators, like, favorite Stan moments or characters or storylines might have been from that era, Uh, you know, You've obviously written some very significant Spider-Man stories yourself. I mean, any that you drew inspiration from for yourself. I'm just anything that you can maybe add to the conversation here. You know, that's tough. Boy, uh, give me some time on that. You know, I mean, when you're talking about those first, you know, 38 issues or so, you know, you're, you're talking about a, an unprecedented amount of creativity on the page. So, uh, you know, choosing is, is just so hard. And, and sometimes, you know, I would want to talk about lingering plots rather than maybe an individual issue there. I love uh, all the all the Betty and Ned stuff that's set up there. Just because it's, it's, Stan had a really dark sense of humor that I don't think people talk about as much. And, and you know, uh, people forget that, that, you know, early Spider-Man, you know, that, that kid's... Uh, that kid's a little bit of a jerk, <laughs> like, like uh, you know. It, but but that stuff just would leave me cackling, you know, when when I would read it. So you know, it's it's uh, uh, it's it's really tough. I think you know the first Mysterio appearance is is another one that that I really really love. But yeah, I mean this is this is tough. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, when I was growing up, I was actually scared of Spider-Man. I was, I was, there was a show called Electric Company, and it was, it, was a, it was sort of like an older version of Sesame Street. It was for older kids, and it had a segment in it, every episode, a live-action Spider-Man. And I cannot explain why, but I was really young, and he freaked me out. He actually scared me and gave me nightmares. And so for a number of years, I was like, avoided Spider-Man. And then my first exposure to Spider-Man wasn't in the uh, original comics themselves. It was in these little trade paperbacks, these, pap- these uh, paper book si- paperback-sized books that Pocket Books published with the original Stan Lee and Steve Ditko run. And I devoured those things. And, like, I loved, like, loved them so much. I still have my, you know, dog-eared you know, broken binding uh, copies that I grew up with. And I remember reading them, and the first, I forget what issue number it was, it was the second appearance of the Vulture. It was like the Vulture Strikes Again, number seven. Okay, so it was issue number seven, and that blew me away. And you have to understand, this is like, you know, this is the early 70s. I'm a really young guy. And the idea that a villain could come back and that it was part of this shared universe blew my mind. Like, and I, I'm, I know I'm talking about something blowing my mind that is like oxygen right now. Everyone sort of takes it for granted, but it was the mo- for me. It felt like the most radical idea, and like well, I feel like one of the things that Stan really gave us uh, was this interconnected universe um, where. You would then, you know, Spider-Man would be in, you know, in the desert and he'd bump into the Hulk. Like, who's the Hulk? Who is this guy? Oh, wow, he's part of this other universe. He, he's interacting with the Fantastic Four. Villains don't just go away. They actually come back. These things really blew my mind as a kid. And I really credit Stan with the one who really 
you know, if he didn't invent the shared universe, he, you know, I mean, Dickens had a shared universe, but he it really perfected it in comics. And uh, you that, you know, in addition to all of his creations, I feel like that looms incredibly large, especially when you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that idea of connecting everything up into a single universe and having the characters all live in the same world and interact with each other, that is a radical idea that we now take for granted, and it's all because of Sam. With now, with 80 books, it's really hard to maintain that level of interconnectivity. I mean, it, it really, not that it could only happen when only one person was writing it, but it certainly made life a lot easier. And now it's, you know, I think you'd almost need someone whose only job it was was making sure that stuff connected up. You know, I wish Marvel actually in DC would hire those people and their respectively in their companies, but I think that'd be really awesome if like only, there was one editor who was reading all the books and going, "Hey, you know what? With one panel, we could have this interaction between this character because they're both in the same place at this particular time." I would, I'd love that. We also reached out to a bunch of other creators to throw their voices into the ring. And uh, while we didn't get any voices, we did get a letter from the guy I was just talking about, J.M. DeMatteis. Uh, Mark, do you want to read the letter that he sent us? He, he had mentioned that he didn't have a chance to call in, but he did say, for the record, this is the issue. And um, in the email, he uh, included a copy of Amazing Spider-Man number 40 which is the second part of the, the Green Goblin Spider-Man Unmasked saga, uh, which kind of kicked off our season uh, in terms of this Ramita and Stanley run. So this is the issue that made me a hardcore Spider-Man fan, and I still think this story is one of the high points in the character's history. I had to track down the first part after the fact, but it was worth the effort. And it also had one of the greatest covers ever, the hero unmasked and at the mercy of the villain. My 12-year-old eyes had never seen its like. Stan Lee and John Romita at their absolute best. And I don't think anybody can disagree with that. And for people who've been listening to our show for nearly 200 episodes, remember, uh, J.M. DeMatteis was our very first creator interview we had on the show. And we asked him about the first time he experienced Spider-Man. And he gave us the same answer, you know, that his love of these particular issues is what kind of hooked him onto the character. So if you're interested, go back to our very beginning of the show and you can listen to him talk in more detail about that. Absolutely. Well, Mark, let's take it home and end this second season of the show. Sounds fantastic, Dan. Well, thanks for joining us for our 12th and final episode of our second season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Uh, Dan, we aren't going to have an episode for our third season of the show for a while, uh, so what should our listeners expect to hear next? Yeah, Mark, as we do at the end of all of our seasons, uh, we're going to be taking a little break so that we can plan the next set of episodes, line up some guests, and do all the research involved as Spider-Man's world continues to grow. But don't you worry, we're still going to be providing plenty of excellent content, perhaps at a bit of a slower pace. So while you wait for our return, I think around the beginning of November... We're going to be tossing out our 200th episode of the show. No big deal, Mark. No big deal. Everybody yep. gets to 200 episodes. It, it is the death of our first enemy episode, Dan. <laughs> I cannot wait. I don't even know who our first enemy of the show is, but they're probably going to die in that episode. So, At the very we'll... least, we can ceremonially kill a burglar in one of our basements. Ooh, I like that. I, well, I don't know. I, I hate confrontation, Dan. 
<laughs> well, then at the very least, we'll just surprise him and give him a heart attack. There you go. Okay, I'm down. Uh, I can't wait. So, Dan, you and I uh, travel to Terrificon to interview guests, uh, hang out, and record a live and in-person episode for the show for our 200th episode, uh, which is still probably one of the most wildest experiences of my life, which may not say a, a lot about the wild experiences of my life, but yeah, <laughs> it was pretty cool. I don't know. I, I thought it was pretty cool recording in front of an audience, Dan. <laughs> I thought it was really cool, too. Uh, so, so who are some of the people that are going to be making an appearance on this show? Well, you know, I, I'll say I can tease it, but I'm just going to give the whole list of uh, everybody on that show so everybody can get really excited. We uh, managed to talk to, in, in, not, in no particular order, uh, Nick Spencer, Christopher Priest, Barry Kitson, Bob McLeod, Mark Guggenheim, and even Paul Souls, the voice of Spider-Man from the original cartoon – all for our 200th episode. Plus, we even got Brian Jacob, who drove all the way up from New, from New York to Mohegan Sun, to join us from the Ultimate Spin podcast as we look back on our past 100 episodes and how we and the show have grown in that time. I'm really excited about it, Mark. I'm sure you're really excited about it. And we can't wait for all of you guys at home or wherever you are to join us for this celebration. Yeah, and you know, again, we we want to stress you. Sh- you should. We we love you all, and we really want you to be a part of this uh, episode any way possible. So don't forget, give us a ring at nine Red Goblin with your name and where you're calling from, and leave us a message for our 200th episode. Again, as we said earlier in the show, our favorite part of episode 100 was hearing from all of you and your stories. So so share them again, and or or share them for the first time, or come up with something else. Give me recipes for Montreal bagels if that's what you want to do. I don't <laughs> care, but call in and, and and drop us a line, and we'll read it. We'll we'll play it on the show, and you can be part of amazing Spider Talk history. Yeah, that's a deep cut reference, Mark, to the the Montreal bagels. Uh, yeah, so expect a lot of kind of navel gazing, but really. Like, you've listened to us for so many hours. Like, let us at least listen to your voice for a minute or two. Absolutely. Well, we've got some other surprises in store for you during our break, and we'll leave them to be surprises. But truly, the best way to keep the fun going is to become a part of our Patreon Members Club. And this week on our Patreon Club, our subscribers are going to be getting a special review episode of Amazing Spider-Man number four, also known as issue number 805. Mark, what what have you been using to kind of quantify these books? Have you been saying four, or have you been saying 805? Yeah, I'm done with the legacy numbering, Dan. I just say four now. <laughs> <laughs> so quick to turn your back on those numbers. Yeah, well, uh, as I mentioned on Twitter uh, right before we recorded this, Dan, my, my issue 801 is missing right now from my uh, home collection. I don't know... I probably misplaced it somewhere uh, in, in uh, trend, you know, transplanting it from place to place. Um, so with that issue out of sight, uh, I guess officially the last issue I had was 800 before the reboot. So, you know, enough with this 805 issue four nonsense. It's just four or 804. <laughs> 801 Mark, doesn't exist, Dan. <laughs> Mark, what are you, are you saying that your collection is incomplete and I am now victorious? Temporarily, Dan. Temporarily. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Additionally to all that, and my ribbing, Mark, is that uh, we've got a review roundup of all of August's B-title books done by the Untold Talks of Spider-Man crew. 
So if you're itching to get more amazing spider talk, like we said, even over the break, there's no better place to go than our Patreon. So remember, for just $3.99 a month, that's the price of a new comic if you've forgotten, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, our, our B-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork, this time from Alex Saviak. And that should be going out at the beginning of September, we hope, whenever he gets that artwork to us. And if you haven't heard yet, we just announced that our next commission piece of artwork is going to be coming from none other than Steve Lieber, the artist of the superior foes of Spider-Man. I cannot wait to see what he delivers us. He sent us some preview artwork or layout artwork, and I think it's going to be really awesome. Mark, do you want to tell people what he's going to be drawing for us? Yeah, well, you know, Steve Lieber, of course, from Superior Foes of Spider-Man, and, uh, you know, our next, not to get too much into the details, but our next season is going to be uh, kind of looking into the era of Spider-Man comics where a lot of the villains that were featured in Superior Foes uh, started making their appearances. So uh, what better way to celebrate that by having a bunch of loser B or D-list Bronze Age villains as your next commission? I mean, you know... Can someone say Grizzly and Cyclone, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be really great, and I know Libra's going to knock it out of the park. And if you want to see images of that or really just talk about Spider-Man with us, why not join our amazing Spider-Slack community? You can check the episode's description for a link to join up with us and start talking to us. I mean, it's a great way to spend your time in between the season break. Absolutely. I might even join in every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you're particularly bad about it. But, I know. Um, Mark, if people really did want to talk to you, not in the spider slack, where could they find you? Yeah, of course, you can find me on Twitter at JasonASMblog, or you can find me uh, in bookstores with 100 things Spider-Man fans should know and do before they die from Triumph Books. Dan, what about you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at @supspidertalk, where I'm kind of like digging through all the new issues of Amazing Spider-Man for hidden Easter eggs and references to Spider-Man history, so you can kind of keep up with all the little things that Nick Spencer seems keen on including in the book, including this week a, a reference to the Life Foundation. Do you remember the Life Foundation, Mark? I can't say that I did, Dan, and now... I just got to rack my brain over it. Yeah, they were a, a group of, uh, I guess, this company that was financing homes for billionaires to stay safe after the apocalypse. So, you know, actually, I think that the Life Foundation is has its own kind of real-world counterpart. There's several articles chronicling how billionaires are building these kind of shelters for themselves to uh, withstand the nuclear uh, apocalypse. So... There you go, the Life Foundation. Find out about that and more on my Twitter feed. But, you know, that's really obscure reference. And, uh, you know, Stan Lee, he's created some of the least obscure references in Spider-Man history, including a motto that ends all of our shows. Mark, what is Stan Lee's kind of famous words that he said on the final page of Amazing Fantasy Fifteen? Of course, those words are, with great podcasts, must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk.